We're back. Happy summer as everybody everywhere is starting to experience the heat and school being out. And that means lots of time to go inside and watch a movie. And that's what we're all about here as part of We've Seen That. I am your somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. My co-host is the famous Jay, Jay Betzel. I'm here in Florida, Jay in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas. And we're looking forward to reminiscing, having fun, and talking a little comedy here on this edition of the show. How are you, partner? Doing well. What's going on in your world? Well, there's lots of different things. I mentioned school is out. Uh, we're getting ready to go on a family vacation coming up. I've already been in some amusement parks. I know you've, you've recently uh, been working uh, the uh, PGA Tour event, the Colonial, and writing about uh, that for some golf, as well as your other duties and as part of this podcast. Uh, but we also, look, I, I also host a couple of other podcasts, including a boxing podcast. And Jay, at the time that we're taping, uh, in 2019, in the first week in June, a massive boxing upset has occurred where really a relatively unknown American, Californian, Mexican-American, Californian by the name of Andy Ruiz, who does not exactly have a muscular uh, Hollywood athletic body, pulled off a shocking upset and beat the heavyweight champion of the world, Britain's Anthony Joshua, at Madison Square Garden, the famous arena, uh, knocked him out. And so that that got, in particular, your wheels turning. You started contacting me after the boxing upset and, and said, wait a minute, the movie that we're hearing the music from here, uh, we, we've, we've got to lock in on a 1990s movie that may be very apropos for the boxing upset that actually happened in the ring in 2019. Exactly, and it's funny you, you know listen to the music kind of just make, <laughs> makes me laugh thinking about this movie. But you know we we are sports guys talking movies because we love movies, and um, oftentimes we will call an audible <laughs> to, to borrow a sports term. And leading up to this fight, you know you heard about two in particular, Cooney Holmes and McNeely Tyson. So that's not very good because usually that means you think they're pulling the wool over the public's eye. But when it was over, you kept hearing another Mike Tyson, but that was Mike Tyson versus Buster Douglas. And this was, I mean, you're much more of a boxing guy than I am, but I was looking forward to uh, seeing Wilder and Joshua. So is that not going to happen now? I don't know it's going to happen anytime soon now that Joshua's been knocked out. And again, the point in the premise is the guy that beat him is kind of like the everyman. And that ties right into the movie that we're going to be talking about here. That It's, it's really got a big-time cast that we're going to get into. It's a comedy. It's fun. Are we ready? Are you ready to do this? Let's do it. Let's talk 1996, The Great White Hype. It feels like we're going to have a meltdown. This guy hurt you at all? Not at all, not at all. He hit me one time, and that was just to wake me up because I was bored in there. Bored? Third round, that's right. And, and it, it, otherwise, it was just like fighting my little sister. I came to bring the pain all from the brain. The world of boxing is not what it used to be. Look at him now. Who the champ now? Who the champ now? He's got a gun, didn't I tell you you're going to get your shot? You ain't my daddy, are you? But all that is about to change. People are tired of paying good money to watch brothers beat up brothers. There ain't a white guy out there for you. I'm going to create you one. White heavyweight? It's like saying black unity. I want you to return to the ring. I don't fight anymore. I guarantee you $10 million. Now, it's the fight of the century. This man knocked out 
James Roper. I was 17, man. I kill Holly Duty now. And everyone's asking the same question. Is it all? Two bucks on the clean-cut white boy. Or is it mm. height? You got to stop eating this stuff to be in some kind of shape. Oh, I'm in shape. I'm round. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, I got a lot of pictures. Ooh. Those pictures will ruin you. Ruin me? My reputation? <laughs> Jamie Foxx. My father had told me that uh, when the green grass starts growing, you know, on the other side, then somebody got to cut the lawn. Jeff Goldblum. You know, my father said, laugh. And, and the whole world laughs with you. Cry, and I'll give you something to cry about, you little bastard. Peter Bird. I'm going to donate all of my monies to eradicating the homelessness situations in America and as well as the United States forever. Cheech Marin. Oh, it's like two moons over Miami. John Lovitz. Shut up. All right. And Damon Wayans. The heavyweight champion of the world. Y'all can kiss my big, black, bloated, Rolls Royce driving... And I'm tired of you fucking me. Yo, we got guns on you and what you got, huh? <laughs> you got a whole bunch of guns with lasers. Woo! <sighs> but I mean, you know, does violence really solve anything? <laughs> Directed by Reginald Hudlin. May 3rd, 1996 from 20th Century Fox gave us the great white hype and... While I enjoyed the movie, it's certainly grown on me over the years. I apparently was not <laughs> one. Oh, apparently I was one of the few people that did see it in the theater because when it opened, it opened number five for the weekend behind the uh, the other new movie that weekend was The Craft with Nev Campbell. Okay. Followed by The Truth About Cats and Dogs with Uma Thurman. The Quest was Jean-Claude Van Damme. Primal Fear, the big hit that had Richard Gere and Edward Norton. And then number five in its first weekend was The Great White Hype. And for 1996 for the year, <laughs> the number one movie, you want, you care to guess for these? You want me to run through uh, Number one, in that you always get me with these. I'm thinking it was not The Great White Hype. I don't think it got anywhere near number. You know what? The Great White Hype might have had a one in its ranking, but it might have had a number or several numbers after it. Go ahead. Okay, number one, Independence Day. Yep. Number two, Twister. Number three, the original Mission Impossible. Number four, Jerry Maguire. So Tom Cruise with two movies in the top four in 96. Good year for him. Number five, Mel Gibson Ransom. Number six, the new uh, the Disney live action uh, with Glenn Close, 101 Dalmatians. Number seven, The Rock with Nicolas Cage, Ooh, Sean Connery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Real good movie. Um, number eight, The Nutty Professor with Eddie Murphy. Number nine, The Birdcage with... Robin Williams oh, fantastic and Gene movie. Hackman. Yep. Number 10, a John Grisham. We did John Grisham recently with the firm. John Grisham's A Time to Kill was number 10. Wow. Uh, give me a second. I'm going to have to well, scroll down. How about this? I, I, can, so. I can honestly tell you that out of that top 10, with the exception of 101 Dalmatians, I saw every one of those in the theater. However, bringing it back to our movie, I did not, as most of America did not, see the great white hype in the theater, although I've seen it uh, since on numerous occasions. But that's an amazing okay. list in 96. Well, let me, yeah, let me add. 96 was a strong year. So let me scroll down. We're in the 130s now, and I found it. <laughs> and I'll just kind of give you some of the ones around wait, it. Number wait, wait, one, wait. Hold ahead. on. Hold on. Let me get my binoculars out. I see it. 
I see Samuel L. Jackson, Jamie Foxx, Damon Wayans, Peter Berg, the great white. I, I see. I do see it. I can see it in the distance. Go ahead. Not not sure why, but it was only out for three weeks. I don't know if Fox <laughs> yanked it or whatever, or if some of the theaters dropped it. But it was only out for three weeks, and it made eight hundred thirty-six thousand its last week. So it was still drawing people. I don't know why they yanked it, but kind of look at some of the ones around it. Number one thirty-one was another Damon Wayans movie. Not the best year for him. Celtic Pride. Right. Before and after one thirty-two, Liam Neeson, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Part Two. In 133, 134, Rich Man's Wife with Halle Berry. Never heard of it. Larger Than Life with Bill Murray with The Elephant. Yeah. I think Matthew McConaughey was also in that. And there we have it, number 136, The Great White Hype. Make $8,008,255, according to our friends at Box Office Mojo. Okay, so we like to often you know, give you some insight. We do movies most of the time that were massively popular, did very well at the box office that people are going to remember. We've already explained and laid out kind of the theory behind why we're doing this one now. Uh, so, but this is a rarity for us. I'm just saying if you go back in our catalog, you're not going to find many movies uh, that are down in the 130s for the year that they were out. Uh, but again, huge stars in this movie, and that's another reason why we're doing this. Great cast, fun movie. You know, sometimes sometimes the movies just don't come out at the right time. Had this movie come out around the time that um, Ruiz knocked out Anthony Joshua, it might have been a little different. Um, and just to mention that we, we've talked about this on some of our past shows, but although this movie did not help him at all, Samuel L. Jackson is the number one box office star of all time. It's crazy. So, I mean, this, this has been it contributed eight million to it. So he's got more than Harrison Ford by virtue of a lot of his. He's been some of the Star Wars. He's been in the Marvel movies, Pulp Fiction. You know, Coming to America. He's he's been in some huge hits. You know, this. Just well, and you mentioned even that year, A Time to Kill. What a different role. I mean, he's in two different roles. Uh, when and I'm I'm popping you uh, with a pop quiz here. When did A Time to Kill come out? Wasn't it that summer? I believe. Correct. It came out in August. Okay. And um. And this one came out in May, so this one was long gone by the time but that he, one came. And he, obviously, that one was a, a controversial movie, and this one was just a funny movie. He was tremendous as Carl Lee Haley, the defendant, uh, who is seeking retribution for his daughter, his young daughter being brutally raped uh, by racist Ku Klux Klan members in the in the South in Mississippi. And Matthew McConaughey is the lawyer, and it's the Grisham book, and uh, a phenomenal, phenomenal movie that I remember seeing that summer that... Samuel, and I'm a huge fan of his for a lot of his different movies, including uh, Pulp Fiction playing Jules, and, and later in the 90s, The Negotiator um, as uh, playing Danny Roman, The Negotiator, and he's trying to figure out who are the guys that have set him up. Uh, All the dirty cops. The dirty cops, and, and uh, during the hostage-taking scene, you're trying to figure out it's kind of a whodunit. I love that one, so there's a, there's a lot of different Samuel L. Do you, do you have one up. of his that stands out that you really like? I, I would probably say The Negotiator. I love him as Danny Roman in The Negotiator. Uh, For and me, Paul- it's, it's definitely Pulp Fiction. The part in the diner. <laughs> I mean, it's, the whole movie, he does great. You know, the, It's just, that that to me is when, when I think of, Samuel Jackson, I think, I of Pulp Fiction. I mean, obviously, Die Hard with a Vengeance, I thought he was good in. Yes. Um, Which, yeah, there, there, there's 90, so many. Die Hard with a Vengeance, 95, right before Correct. this, as Zeus before with uh, John McClane running around in New York with the madman blowing everything up. Uh, I want to throw one out, too, that a lot of people don't really think about, is the um, 2000 uh, Shaft with yes. him and Christian Bale. I th- they're making and, sequels coming out this yes. summer. We're, we're recording this, but oh, that was really good. Yeah, so that one's coming back in, and you mentioned a lot of his other uh movies that have been the action movies and the different ones so love samuel l jackson 
uh, here in this one. And and look, it's going to be a theme. We're going to have a special guest coming up to join us, uh, someone that I'm acquainted with a couple of different ways, but he's a stand-up comedian. And we've got some stand-up comedians that were making a transition off of doing stand-up comedy and being on the small screen and being on Saturday Night Live and being on the show, the very popular Fox show in Living Color, the comedy sketch show that was on. Uh, in in the likes of Damon Wayans and Jamie Foxx and John Lovett. So um, an acquaintance of mine, a friend of the program, let's just say Eric Oligny will be here. And Eric is a stand-up comedian. And he's got some great insight into these guys that were here. So while Samuel L. Jackson is the most famous of the movie stars, there's there's some other significant stars and there's some TV comedians that are also here in this one when you look back on it in 1996, Jay. You're right. You know, when we mentioned Samuel Jackson, his character, the Reverend Fred Sultan, is essentially a, a movie version of Don King. Can we that, agree on that? That's right. The longtime <laughs> boxing com- promoter with the wild hair. Only in America, uh, Don King. And so, yes. And uh, his, li- his, his only in America line is, I love you. I love you. And, and Sultan is the underhanded boxing promoter in this one that is always up to ripping off the fighters. Not unlike what Don King did in the 80s and the 90s. Right, and then moving on the cast, we have um, Mitchell Kane's care. Mitchell Kane's played by Jeff Goldblum, who's another one. He's been in a bunch of big movies. He was also in uh, Jurassic Park. The Samuel Jackson was in, and so. and also uh, Independence Day, which would have been that same summer, the massively exactly popular year. one. Uh, that same year, and he's he's the, the fly. Did you see the fly? I did see the fly. Very spooky in the fly, and that helped make him with his career. And uh, but in this one, he's he's kind of the goofy documentary maker that is trying to expose the corruption in boxing and, and expose Reverend Sultan, only to turn to how should we say it, Star Wars wise, to the dark side of the Force a little yeah, bit later he, on. He totally he totally sells out. Um, Jeff Goldblum wise, do you have any favorite movies of his or favorite roles? I, I would probably have to say Independence Day. Going back to that one, I, I love him probably best in that. I don't know about you. Uh, but I liked the the Big Chill from back in '83 mm-hmm. with you know William Hurt, Kevin Klein, Tom Berenger. You had uh, Glenn Close, and you know that one was famous because you know Lawrence Kasdan made it, and they cut out Kevin Costner's part. He was the main character, the character that committed suicide that brought them all together. I thought he was really good in that. He was like a reporter for People Magazine. Another one I really liked, speaking of same Lawrence Kasdan, was uh, Silverado. In 85, the Western, we kind of the little return to the Western with Silverado and Pale Rider in 85, the Clint Eastwood film. So I thought he was really good in that. But I mean, he's just he's a dependable actor. You know what you're going to get. And he, he does a good job. And he's not, not quite Samuel Jackson's range. But I mean, he's got so many big hits that, you know, there, there's a lot of a lot of movies he's in. A lot of times you just kind of see him pop up because he can play so many different roles. All right. So Damon Wayans also in this one and Damon Wayans known uh, again for the sketch comedy in living color with his brother, Keenan Ivory Wayans. They basically were, were creators and writers on that show. Uh, and he is the boxer, the heavyweight champion, essentially kind of like the Mike Tyson knockoff, James, the grim Reaper Roper. Uh, he he kind of talks like Tyson. He does. Movie, he? He, pur- he purposely kind of has the lispy voice like Tyson from back in the day. And is even trying to be philosophical like Tyson often would. <laughs> After he would brutalize an opponent and stand in the post-fight interview and start quoting poetry or talking about philosophy after he had done it. Um, and, and it's interesting that Wayans had been in The Last Boy Scout, right, with Bruce Willis. And it right, maybe like another movie or two in and around in Living Color as well as this one. Uh, but not, not a huge movie career and now has gone back to the smaller screen later in his career. Yeah, um, he was on the Lethal Weapon show. 
that was on Fox, like the right. TV version of Lethal Weapon. We just did Lethal Weapon a couple weeks ago. He was on that, and that one got um, recently canceled. It yeah, was a good, uh, him, good what, three seasons, though, that that was one just, was yeah, on. Yeah, it was just his third season. There was a lot of drama. The guy that played Martin Riggs, the, he got fired. The actor did, and they brought in Sean William Scott from the um, American Pie series and amongst other movies. And so he was in that. Um, i trying to think other Damon Wayans movies. He, he was in Major Pain. Remember that one? Right. Back in the, uh, in the with 90s. Him and Adam Sandler. Well, he was comedian. big. He was big in the early 2000s on the ABC sitcom, the family sitcom, My Wife and Kids. And I loved him as the dad mm-hmm. uh, trying to ki- trying to rein in his kids, including his teenage kids. So as they got older, so uh, you could relate to that. So, yeah, we know we know Damon Wayans, uh, of course, very, very famous cameo in the original Beverly Hills Cop as the guy that's standing behind the fruit at the at the buffet. The bananas. <laughs> you, you could go ahead. You could just take those bananas. Just take those bananas for the banana and the tailpipe. Uh, And then Peter Berg is the other prominent fighter playing Irish Terry Conklin. We kind of not Irish. And he makes it a (laughs) point over and over again to say, I'm not Irish. But that's the whole premise behind what Reverend Sultan sees that uh, that the Damon Wayans character, James, the Grim Reaper Roper, is just beating up on other uh, black fighters. And no one cares. The public doesn't care. No one's watching. You know, as the movie begins, we see that he beats another black uh, contender opponent senseless Hollywood style. And and yet the pay-per-view is down 50 percent and 75 percent from two pay-per-views ago. They're losing money. So the idea becomes we've got to fabricate a white fighter uh, that will come in and be a threat here to Roper to be able to sell it, to be able to make some money. And that's Peter Berg's character in this. Right. He says, if there's not one out there, I'll create you one. And he literally creates him. Um, Peter Berg, he, he's producer, director, actor. Some of his better acting roles I remember was, um, you know, I've told people on the show over time that I used to live in Aspen when I got to high school. He was in the movie Aspen Extreme, which I've heard plenty of people call Top Gun on skis. Mm-hmm. So he was in that. Another really good one he was in, it's, it's a lesser known, but it was, uh, it's got quite the cult following. The Last Seduction from 1994 also had Linda Fiorentino. Have you seen that one? Have not seen that one. I know good. about it. Good one? Yeah, good, good, inter- entertaining one if you get a chance to watch it. And they followed the Great White Hype up with Copland. Do you remember Copland at all? Not really on that one because it, this cast it all Copland. blurs together because Copland and uh, Colors and Robert De Niro, yeah, yeah, Sylvester Stallone, Harvey Keitel. Robert Patrick, John Spencer, Ray Liotta. I mean, huge. This and this is the one. Um, if you remember this, Sylvester Stallone put a lot of weight on. He like ate a bunch of pizza and stuff to be to be the police chief in this small <laughs> town that had a bunch of um, police officers living in it, and they, a lot of them were kind of crooked and stuff. And anyways, he um, would, did that to kind of try and win an Oscar, similar to stuff that had been done in the past. But the movie just wasn't well received. And Berg uh, ended up acting in, in some other movies. I mean, uh, I've, I've seen him recently in Collateral again on, on replays where he is playing a police detective. Uh, and, of course, Jamie Foxx is in that one with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is the hitman. Jamie Foxx is the cab driver. They're trying to figure out what's going on here with these series of murders in one night in Los Angeles. But Peter Berg, also known as a director and a prominent well, Before we leave his acting, yeah. I want to mention he was on the popular HP show ballers yes he was the the dolphins coach if you will and he got but, kind of remind a lot of people of jimmy johnson because he was on his boat well but before he even got to the 20 late 2010s and ballers the with the rock and that show and he even directed some of those correct of those correct. episodes he, direct, he definitely directed the first episode i know um and he's done a, a lot of big movies at lone survivor he did a battleship Remember there the you go battleship? and and uh, video game 
and was in on The Kingdom, another Jamie Foxx movie where the FBI agents go and investigate a terrorist bombing that kills Americans at, a, at an American uh, uh, living area in Saudi Arabia. Peter Berg, the director on that one. And he also directed another one that we did back during the football season, the Friday Night Lights movie with Billy Bob Thornton. Peter Berg, the director on that one. And also, am I correct, the director of the NBC TV series, or at least the executive producer of that I series. I know he was right? executive producer. I mean, that series went on for a while with Kyle Chandler as the coach. I don't think he directed like every episode, but he was definitely a part of an executive producing. So the there's... Police. Remind I mean, me, if from our episode, I think he was related to Buzz Bissinger, the writer, somehow. And that was how he got the rights, wasn't that it? Something like that. So, but I mean, again, yes, I mean, so he was definitely involved in the show. too. He he is not only known as an actor, but also behind the camera big time in Hollywood. And Peter Berg also has done a long running series on HBO about uh, youth sports, parenting and the and the whole craze uh, to live almost vicariously through your kids. Uh, and youth sports. So uh, he's done a lot from behind the camera as well, but he's Irish Terry Conklin in this. All right, who else do we want to hit and on? We, wait, we both love the 30 for 30 on ESPN. Oh, yeah. He did the one on Wayne Gretzky getting traded to the Kings oh. from Edmonton called the Kings Ransom, which is a it's a sad well, one to watch because it just ripped the heart out of Edmonton. I mean, and the no ironic doubt. part is Edmonton kept winning when he left because their team was so great. And, Gre- <laughs> but, and Gretzky only yeah. got to the Stanley Cup Finals one time with the L.A. Kings, and Barry Melrose, the ESPN analyst, was the coach, and they didn't win it, and that was it. I, I love, now that you've jogged my memory, I love Peter Berg talking about the documentary with Wayne Gretzky. They use this in the 30 for 30 while they're hitting golf balls on a driving range. Talk- it looks like they're at Sherwood Country Club. <laughs> I mean, it was true. Tremendous uh, where they're going over the trade and all that different stuff where one of the iconic sports figures of the of all time in hockey and of, of the of the 1980s and the 90s got traded. And, and so you're right, jogging my memory uh, on that. All right. So a couple more out of the cast. Corbin Burnson, who was known very much for the popular L.A. Law TV series that I was big on. He's in this as the hotel owner, Peter Prince. So we see him in and around all of the discussions. Uh, John Lovitz, the comedian. Hang on. I want to mention on Corbin. Corbin Burnson, he was in Major League prior to this. There you go. He'd been been in some movies, and we did an an episode on baseball with Rob Dibble where we talked a lot of Major League and Bull Durham and stuff. And so we we, we uh, talked a little about Roger Dorn. Roger Dorn, the third baseman, the antagonist here who's a veteran who hates uh, all the young guys and the trying to win and hates Charlie Sheen. So he's good in that in L.A. Law. So he, he was just, he was getting paid. So he didn't care anything about winning. He just wanted his money. Exactly. He definitely didn't want to take a, a, grounder to the eye or anything. Cor- Corbin Burnson will always be Arnie Becker from L.A. Law, though, as the divorce and family lawyer that is unethical and was sleeping with all of his clients and uh, always a mess and always in trouble. But he's definitely in this as the hotel owner. Now, we mentioned John Lovitz, uh, who is essentially the marketing guy or promotions guy for the Reverend Sultan and for the hotel. Uh, he's involved. We see him frequently. We're going to talk more about John Lovitz. Again, no more for the comedy and Saturday Night Live in a little bit with our special guest. Um, and also Cheech Marin, known more for comedy and obviously the Cheech and Chong movies. Uh, he is in this as kind of the corrupt boxing official Julio Escobar. It's, uh, it, it's always been kind of a laughing punchline about how the boxing organizations can be bought, can be bribed and corrupted to get fighters in there. So Cheech Marin in this some. Um, Jamie Foxx also there, the early movie makings of Jamie Foxx, who again was a comedian, a comedian and a writer on the In Living Color show and began to transition to the to the big screen and now has done massively successful Went on to win movies. an Oscar. Oh, yeah. For, for playing for, uh, uh, Ray, Ray Charles. Charles movie. Right, exactly. And he was also in one of the movies we did, Any Given Sunday. 
Yes. Which I told you I got to be an extra. And so I was down there kind of on the field. When you he were was, brush with and greatness. And they were doing their thing. Brush with greatness in and around uh, Jamie Foxx. So uh, I, I think, you know, we we fairly well covered uh, the cast. There's a couple of Sally Richardson, the good-looking female, as Bambi. Uh, Rocky yeah, Carroll is Artemis. John Reese yeah. davies played Johnny Windsor, the uh, trainer for Irish Terry Conklin, who straight up told Reverend, he's like, once he gets in the ring, there's nothing I can do. I can make him look like a fighter. But we know him from like the Indiana Jones movie. That's so right. Another familiar face. Rocky Carroll, who played Artemis, who's probably my favorite one in the movie. He's basically the bookkeeper for the Reverend. He, We've seen him in uh, Crimson Tide. That's right. Yes, man. You know, he's, he's been in a bunch of stuff. Crimson Tide would have been the year before, right? 1995. Correct. The Correct. year it before. Was 95. It was before. But he's Artemis here uh, in this one. And so that's kind of the band that's around the Reverend Sultan while he's trying to make the money. And the premise of this movie, again, is they want a lucrative fight for for the champ, for James Roper, who's kind of disinterested with boxing, it seems like now. He's been beating up everybody, kind of like Tyson became. And they need a white fighter, the great white hype. They need to create somebody and hype it, hype it up around him. So that's that's the whole premise of this movie is they go and create Irish Terry Conklin, right, Jay? Kind of, yeah. They're they're in the uh, the, the hotel suite talking afterwards, and he's you know, of course, the Reverend has to explain to to Roper that the they took a bath on the pay per view, so he's not sure how much he's gonna be able to pay him, but he'll get him another Rolls Royce. So he gets real mad. He, you know, he screams. He's like, I've, I got a contract. He's like, I'm going to sue you. And then <laughs> Artemis, like I said, Artemis, my, my favorite character goes, have you read the contract? So basically says that they, they, they got it all set up where they don't have to pay him a dime if they don't want to. Um, and so they start talking about it. And uh, Samuel Jackson says, what's the highest grossing pay-per-view of all time? Right. And so they start throwing out, you know, Michael Spinks, Larry Holmes. They start throwing all these, you know. Which kind of took me back to the good old days, you know? Was it Tyson and and Tyson Ray Ruddick, and, you know, and oh yeah, yeah all the great all fights. Ali Ali Frazier, the Thriller in Manila. No, that's yeah. not it. They so, keep going so, on and on. So Samuel L. Jackson's character, Reverend Sultan, looks over at Roper, and Roper just calmly says, "Cooney Holmes." And so essentially, they they break it down. Obviously, this movie is um, twenty three years old, so they can be a little freer with some of the talk than, oh, than Lord, movies yes. today would be now. But um, essentially what he says is that people are tired of um, of paying to see brothers beat up brothers. Right. Right. And so so his, his thing is, he's like, he, we I need a, a white champ, a white heavyweight champion more than white America well, does. And we and should if there's not one. I'm going to create you one. Let me let me say this. We should we shouldn't assume that all the people that are listening to us here, however, you found us again uh, through Red Circle Podcasting and you, su- you subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts. Not everybody may be a boxing fan. So Larry Holmes was the heavyweight champion after Muhammad Ali in boxing. And Jerry Cooney was essentially a fighter in New York, a white uh, you know, Irish fighter that everybody gravitated to because he scored several spectacular knockouts against maybe questionable competition. So that well, there he was a, Norton, didn't he? He did, he did but Norton was at kind of the end of his career. Gotcha. So it's very similar to the movie in that how much was Cooney legitimate versus how much was Cooney just the great white hype in real life to fight Larry Holmes and Larry Holmes beat him decisively, but it was a very lucrative fight. So that's but that's the what thing, the Sultan's boy, you, talking you about. You say decisively, he beat him in round 13 it wasn't like he knocked him out in the first round correct you know so i mean that's so like i think a lot of people just think back on it and look at like the fight was a joke i mean it it managed to go 13 rounds and the reason that the fight ended up being stopped was cooney was up against the ropes and his trainer threw the towel in yeah he had been beaten around too much as the fight went on and it was obviously he he had blood he had cut on his eye so i mean there's that so you know uh, we've talked about this 
recently off, you know, you and I off the air, we talked about this is probably closer to Tyson versus Peter McNeely, which was Tyson's right. first fight after coming out of yes. prison for rape. And that one went quick. In fact, I don't less remember than, these like less than two minutes. Knocked him, yeah, but he knocked him down in 10 seconds <laughs> and he got back up because remember he came right at him. He just popped him, you know, so he was down. And then um, ironically, I believe Mills Lane refereed both of those fights, the um, Cooney Holmes and Tyson. McNeely. Yeah, how about that? And yeah. And so I think wasn't that a first round knockout? Yeah, he knocked him out in under two minutes. And again, that would have been right before the movie was filming and being made, kind of along the same lines. And McNeely was Irish. They're trying to to play that angle up. And again, we tie this back to the American. Yeah, literally, that fight was August 19th, 1995. So they, they were probably, they either probably rushed and made this movie after that. <laughs> I was probably watching this, so that'd be a funny movie. Or they were already working on it, and that was kind of the right. purpose of it. And so, again, the premise here is the uh, recently, the it's kind of the same thing. The British fighter, Anthony Joshua, who's black, came to the United States to fight for the first time, and they were looking for a credible American to fight him, and the first guy flunked drug tests. So the next guy they fought find to, to fight him is a Mexican-American named Andy Ruiz, a contender that was not supposed to be much of a threat. Here we go, well, kind of man. Did Joshua beat Klitschko or one of those That's to get correct. the title? That's okay. correct. So this guy was not supposed to be much of a threat, and then real life took over, and the huge upset took over. And so that's kind of, again, back to our movie, our 96 movie. What we're talking about here, can Irish Terry Conklin land the big punch, score the upset? Because, again, in the premise of the movie, Conklin had beaten James cool. Roper as an amateur, and then Conklin had given up boxing. He doesn't care anymore. He's like a grunge rocker, like a a 1996 Kurt Cobain grunge grunge heavy metal uh, the, the rock star in Cleveland, Ohio. He's not even a fighter. He's not even an athlete anymore. But they convince him, you can come be the great white hype. Well, remember how they decided to to pick him? Was they're watching all these videos of of you know white fighters all just getting laid out and every time one gets popped the whole, everybody in the room's like oh they're all cringing you know? right yeah they're just getting laid out and so um the the bambi the girl that works for um yep. Cheech Marin's character she she throws out the idea of the fact that um she says now roper is undefeated as a pro and you know artemis says well gave it away his record you know and they're all giving her such a hard time you know making they think she's stupid she's like but he lost as an amateur to who and the reverend stands up and gives her a big hug and says, you're smarter than all these guys I put together. Love and, they, you. and they talk about <laughs> Terry Conklin. So she goes and finds him. And he's, he's a, like you said, he's a grunge rocker in this just, you know, very average nightclub in Cleveland. And, you know, they go visit him and basically he's back there and his guys are bringing random girls backstage for him to say if he wants them or not. While, while the reverend's trying to pitch the idea to him, he throws out, um, he says, I don't fight anymore. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here to eradicate problems for the homeless and stuff like that. And then he says, I'll give you $10 million. And so that, that perks his ears up. And, um, you know, they, they drag him out there and they nickname him Irish Terry Conklin, even though he's not Irish. He even mentions, like, I'm not Irish. And like, it's okay. It's boxing uh, terminology for being white. And it's just, you know, and watching it, you can see how funny it is and just the total manipulation that's being put together. And in the meantime, we mentioned Jeff Goldblum's character earlier. He's doing a documentary filmmaking to um he wants to do a documentary to bring down the evil reverend sultan what a terrible guy he is he talks about how he's been arrested he's been in jail he's stolen from so many people he's he was a running a person. ponzi scheme and, as an elementary school student yeah, on his classmates yeah he's just an right. awful awful guy so anyways he um 
he's got all these photos of, of the, the Reverend with um, some cheerleaders and stuff. It looked like, and he, you know, he's going to try and use it as, as uh, leverage to um, get an interview with him for his movie. And uh, the, the Sultan literally flips the script on him and hires him and fires John Lovett's character, the, the marketing guy. <laughs> and so to try to shut him he, up, right. To disclose yeah, the yeah, whole he, thing, he, buy him he, off. He says here, I'm not, I won't have to worry about it. I'll just give you a job. He's like, cause you're right up my alley. You know, you trying to leverage people. And so in the meantime, um, Mitchell Kane's is Jeff Goldblum's character's name. Kane's people, the documentary film crew, are all outside of the, the Sultan suite. And he walks out. He'd obviously had his feet in the hot tub while they're talking business. And rather than coming out with this huge revelation, he starts promoting the fight. <laughs> you know? And so the, one of the girls that works for him basically calls him a sellout and leaves. And they all leave. And they've got John Lovitz you know, gets, gets marched out and put on the elevator right in front of him. So they all kind of figure out what's going on that he bought him off. And that's that, that guy kind of leads. It kind of sets up to where we are. All right. So uh, a good point in time here, as we've now set up exactly what the premise of the movie is and how everything is going to unfold to bring on a special guest from the world of comedy. I'm looking forward to this, Jay Betzel. So here we go. Yes, indeed. All right. Here he is. I got much love for this guy for a lot of reasons, Jay Betzel, because he is from my area, from Tampa. From my high school, Henry B. Plant High School in South Tampa. We are Plant Panthers, neath the pines of Palmacia. Uh, Eric Oligny is a comedian uh, by trade, and I, I reached out with the bat signal, hey, would you be interested in coming on the We've Seen That podcast to talk a little comedy, to talk the great white hype uh, with us? And Eric said, absolutely. So, Eric, welcome. Good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I love your podcast. It's a great podcast. Uh, we had you on the Steve Renazifi's podcast and all things comedy recently, and it was really great having you. So it's great you have me on yours. Uh, I appreciate the reciprocal effort. Okay, so uh, we have already covered this movie was not exactly a blockbuster. We're being kind. It made a grand total of $8 million back in 1996, but it had some big-time names uh, in the movie. Samuel L. Jackson, obviously, at, at the top of it, but it had some comedians. And so this is where you kind of tie in with Damon Wayans, John Lovitz, Jamie Foxx. There they were on the big screen. These guys, Eric, were a big deal, obviously, Saturday Night Live in Living Color as the two comedy sketch shows in the 90s. Now here they are in this movie. Give me, give me some thoughts on those guys making the transition into the big screen and becoming movie actors as comedians. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy. If you look at this movie, it's one of those movies that you want you want in your heart to love this movie just because of the actors and who's in it. And then you watch it and you're like, I liked it. But you can never, it's not one of those ones you really love. But you want to because of how the, the great actors in it. Um, and I love John Lovitz. He's, he's one of my uh, closer friends in L.A. now because I worked with him for a couple of years. Um, it's just that hey, he's been doing comedy so long that he stays in his shtick now. So, uh, <laughs> one of my great stories with John Lovitz is, uh, I worked at funny. You should ask as a stage manager. And so I'd take care of all the comedians and I would go in early in the morning and John would bring his dog, Jerry with him. And Jerry's the sweetest little dog, but I'd have to walk him as a stage manager. That's not exactly what you want to be doing. Um, so I wouldn't walk him and I just put him in his trailer and uh, I knew that Jerry would poop in John's trailer. <laughs> so I would take, I would go to set and uh, John would tell me, Jerry pooped in my trailer again. And that's how I'd get John back on set. Uh, and 
eventually that became a running joke with him and I, and we became really close friends through that, uh, just his dog pooping in his trailer. And now, and then I, I got to the point where I just started walking his dog. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned John Lovitz. I was going to say, obviously, he's a stand-up comedian and Saturday Live and everything, but I thought he turned in, he kind of worked into a really good actor, like his role in Big and his real, role in League of Their Own. I thought he did just really good job on screen. What do you think about those? I think he's just a fantastic, talented person. I, I just He's one of those people who's built to do this. Um, I wouldn't say that for myself. I wouldn't be, I don't think I'm a great actor. I've gone to auditions before and I'm pretty terrified if those tapes ever come out because I was pretty awful. Um, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and so, yeah, I give him more credit. He's, and he's really just, he's a professional. And when he's on set, he is, uh, he's a hundred percent there with you. And, and I like him for that. Uh, I love I love in the league of their own. Uh, hey, cowgirls, don't eat the grass is one of the lines. And then he and then he also says, "I got to go home and give the wife a pickle tickle." And that that still cracks me up to this uh, to this day. And and again, we need to relate this that in and around this time, he was love it's a big deal on Saturday Night Live. In and around Mike Myers being on the show, help me, Eric, if I leave somebody out, Dana Carvey, some of the others. I loved Sandler, him, Adam Sandler, right? Thank you, Jay Betzel. But I loved him as Master Thespian, speaking of the acting, <laughs> and the over-the-top Master Thespian, Eric Oligny. Were you a fan of that? Yeah, I was, I was a big fan of all his. And the weird thing is about John Lovitz, a lot of people know this, he wasn't on Saturday Night Live that long, he, but he... I have friends that were on SNL way longer than him, but don't have a career like his because he had these standout characters that he just blew up immediately from it. Um, one of my friends, Jeff Richards, was on for three years, and he's not well-known anymore, but he did Drunk Girl. Um, and he's not as well-known as Lovitz because Lovitz's characters were just, they hit the they hit the mainstream and everyone loved him. And, love uh, love that. The power of the power of love it's, I mean, just for just for being on SNL for such a short time, and people remember him like he was on for 20 years. With my wife, Morgan Fairchild, whom I've slept with, <laughs> you'd always utter that line over and over again. Uh, Eric Oligny uh, obviously knows a lot about comedy, so let's talk about Damon Wayans, the Wayans Brothers in Living Color. Were you a fan of that show? And, and, uh, and in terms of what you do, uh, it was, it, hey, it was a competitor to Saturday Night Live. It was a lot of fun when I watched, but what about you? I know you're a little younger than Jay and me, slightly, uh, but uh, were you a fan of In Living Color with the Wayans Brothers and Jamie Foxx also part of that show? I mean, In Living Color was the show when I was growing up. Uh, I'm 39, so I, it was, it's right in that age range where it was the show to watch. And it's funny that it brought in, I mean, what people will talk about that a lot right now is there wasn't a lot of black uh, comedy shows back then. There wasn't. Mm-hmm. There wasn't the Chappelle show. There wasn't all. There wasn't Can Peel. This was like the one that broke it out. And I mean, Fire Marshal Bill was one of the great ones. <laughs> Homie, don't play that. Just so many great sketches that you just you can go back who's in our age range and you can just say homie don't play that and they immediately go to that <laughs> character that damon wayans played um the clown the the black clown which is something you not never hey saw. you it's, just jogged my memory i did not remember this jay i'm being serious eric i'm being serious i did not remember this till right this second when eric oligny said this I actually bought a homie don't play that shirt for me and for my sister living back in Tampa and gave it to her as a birthday gift. I'm in college in Memphis. We had matching homie don't play that shirts. Damon Wayans in living color. Boom. 
I hope you still have those. those are I God, don't think, you know, I don't think I do, but my sister loves to keep everything. She may have hers, so I might have to check into that area. Um, I was going to say about you. Living Color, too. Remember when Jim Carrey came out for Ace Ventura and the way everybody knew him, he was the white guy from In Living Color. Yeah, oh, yeah. He was he was the uh, the Gary, what's his name, Gary, for, uh, if you remember back then, they had the Deaf Comedy Jam on HBO. Yes. And they always had just one white guy that would be on there. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember his name. It's Gary something. But that was him. Like, Jim Carrey was so amazing. He's also a comedy store legend. Uh, he... Is you know I was I've been at the I was at the comedy store for nine plus years and getting to get my education in comedy at the comedy store you learn all the history and Jim Carrey is just he's one of those guys you hear a lot about um, he used to go in the main room of the comedy store and with just a sock on his his uh, private parts <laughs> and he, he would he would do a set just with a sock on. And it's just that's a, and there, that still goes on today. There's still comics that do that and tribute to him. Oh wow! Uh, again, we're getting uh, a lot of uh, great stories and insight on comedy and LA, and now moving to New York is Eric Oligny. You can follow him at Eric Oligny O L I G N Y on Twitter. He and I. Uh, know each other from uh, communication on social media and talking. Uh, again, uh, Eric is from the area where I am, but he is now moving to New York to be uh, to continue on with his comedy career with all the things he's done. And I love the stories uh, that you're sharing. Hey, let's talk about Jamie Foxx, too, for a second. Uh, we see him on this. Did we have any clue that the guy that was running around as a comedian on In Living Color could become the massive successful actor on the big screen that he became. What about it, Eric? Uh, I mean, his his whole career is pretty insane. Do you know that Jamie Foxx isn't his real name? That he actually, that's a, that was a female comedian's name that didn't show up at an open mic. Oh, no. And so? Okay, so, so Jamie Foxx was at a, a, at a show, and this girl, Jamie Foxx, didn't show up to the show, and they called her name on stage. So Jamie decided, oh, she's not going to go. I'll take that spot. And that's where he got the name Jamie Foxx from, because that was some... So now there's a female comedian out there. Maybe she quit or whatever, but she has her own name. <laughs> she's, she's responsible. Wasn't his last name like Bishop, something like Greg Bishop, something like that? And, yeah, and maybe uh-huh, his yeah. real name? Something like that. Yeah, and he just... And he just went with Jamie Foxx from that day forward, and man, has that paid off uh, in spades. Yeah, he and just the craziest career, and you got and you got to love a guy like him because he's so talented and and funny. And he did the Gerard Carmichael route. Gerard Carmichael's going his route now, where he was doing comedy all the time, and he got so famous that comedy wasn't in, even in his genes anymore. He's just like, I'm not going to do stand up anymore. Um, which is Gerard Carmichael, if you know who that is. Uh, He's becoming more famous now. He was in the Transformers movie. Um, he blew up around the time I was at the comedy store, and I got to watch him. He's a fantastic stand-up comedian, but he doesn't do it anymore because he's making so much money off movies and off HBO and all this other stuff. And so I like that they, these guys realize that stand-up is not easy and that uh, why not not do it if I'm making enough money doing something else? Well, this might be kind of a loaded question, but do you have a favorite that's come from these comedy sketch goes or stand-up comedy that's gone on to be a movie star? Like, for me, Eddie Murphy, to me, just rules the roost. Do you have someone like that? Oh, yeah, definitely. It would be uh, Graham Chapman from Monty Python. Oh, okay. Uh, 
he's the uh, if a lot of people don't know, I'll just he's the and if you watch most people know the Monty Python movie, uh, Search for the Holy Grail. Yes. He plays he plays the lead character in Search for the Holy Grail, uh Lancelot. And it's just to me, he's one of the best comedic actors of all time. He's dead now. He died of HIV, AIDS, uh, in the late eighties. Um, but it just what a brilliant talent and like he was the reason I even started stand up comedy. Oh wow. wow. Uh, I promise I I'm going to bring it back. I love that. I, I promise I'm going to bring it back to the Great White Hype in a second, but we also want to plug, we recently did Fletch on this show with Chevy Chase uh, with special guests, and Eric actually listened to our show, so I want a little bit of a critique, but we got to talk about Chevy Chase making that same transition from doing sketch comedy on Saturday Night Live for the one season and being a comedian and having it translate so greatly onto the big screen with so many funny movies like Caddyshack or like Fletch uh, he was kind of a forerunner to this, to what Eddie Murphy was able to do, and then some of the other comedians, Mike Myers and Dana Carvey with Wayne's World, what they were able to do to go off the, the sketch comedy or the stand-up comedy. Um, and Tom, Tom Hanks, by the way, the same thing. Tom Hanks originally, Eric, I know you're smiling. I can't see you. Tom Hanks was originally a comedian uh, who later did Bosom Buddies as a comedic actor, and then all these great movies yeah, after that. So... Uh, Chevy Chase and Fletch. What do you want to say about Chevy Chase and and uh, and the Fletch uh, movie breakout performance that we thought that was along with Caddyshack? I mean, Chevy Chase, another one who you just watch. He's so so funny. Um, and another great comedy store story is that he came back recently and did a spot because his daughter is now working at the comedy store. Wow! And she is a she's one of the door girls and. She's the sweetest girl, and I actually got to sit down and talk to her about her father and how weird it is to watch these. They're making all these documentaries now, like um, A Stupid and Futile Gestures on Netflix. It's all about uh, the guy who created the, the Harvard Lampoon, which turned into the National Lampoon. And it has Chevy Chase doing all this cocaine in the movie. And I asked her, I said, how does it feel to watch your dad doing all this stuff in these documentaries? And she just said, uh... I don't pay attention to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good that she probably doesn't on uh, on that. But still, such a great. I mean, it was interesting because we did that podcast, and they just had the anniversary. Jay, help me here. They did the anniversary. I think on Friday uh, was the May thirty first was the thirty fourth anniversary, and Chevy Chase began to put on social media about the movie and about how much it, it was improvised. Um, and Eric, I don't know how familiar you are with this, but they apparently were shooting scenes where they would shoot the scene scripted with what he was supposed to say, and then they would go ahead and do more takes with it unscripted, with him just doing improv. Uh, like, for example, the scene where he is sitting with uh, Gail Stanwick's dad, who's the uh, the aviation guy, and they're talking about the stock, and he's supposed to be from Washington, D.C., and he's sitting there with the glasses, and he's got the Band-Aid on his nose, and his name is Mr. Poon, and the, and the guy says, what kind of name is Poon? And he says, Comanche Indian. Chevy Chase was saying, Jay and Eric, that what you basically saw from that scene was completely improv of him and the other actor behind the desk playing the dad is just kind of going along with it while he's improving. And that they, they did different takes with him saying different things. They did a couple of takes where he didn't have the Band-Aid on his nose, according to Chevy Chase, but the actress that was playing the secretary, how about this? I know I'm digressing. The actress that was playing the secretary had a Band-Aid on her hand. 
and he noticed the Band-Aid, and he said to her, this is comedy, right, Eric? He said, give me the Band-Aid, and she said, why? He's like, give me the Band-Aid, and he put the Band-Aid on his nose, and then he did a couple of takes sitting there, and everybody loved the production people, the director, loved him as Poon sitting with the Band-Aid on his nose and then making the excuse. (laughs) That was all made up, is my point. He made that up on the fly. Eric, what do you think about hearing that kind of story? I mean, uh, if you if you study the Lampoon, uh, all the Lampoon movies, that actually started with the, I can't remember his name, the guy who created the Lampoon right now. I'm having a brain fart, but that's okay. He actually they would do they would do a lot of their movies like uh, what was the Animal House was the first one. Yes, they would go and they would do that. They would script the lines and they would do after that they would do the scripted stuff and then they would do extra stuff with all improv because they had so many talented improv people with them. So they would end up finding better scenes just by letting these people play. And one of my favorite TV shows that I actually got to, I get to work with Steve and Azizi now was mostly improv, which uh, is the league. Uh, it's mostly improv. They just get the, and also curb your enthusiasm. It's improv. They just get an idea and they go with it. And I like that. I like that they're letting these comedians just use their talent. It was Doug Kenny, the guy you're talking about from National Lampoon? Doug Kenny, yeah, there yeah. you go. Thank you. I remember you. We, we did an episode on, on Caddyshack, and there was a lot of Doug Kenny talk from that. So I was, I was trying to – I was drawing a blank, but I think that's it. Yeah, okay, we have – uh, he... Yeah, go no, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead on Doug Kenny, yes. Oh, I just think he's one of those people that's, uh, you know, obviously another one that's a late gray. He's passed away, but he uh, he had a pretty crazy life, and everything he touched when he wrote it, was gold it was pure gold and it's like there's very few people like that i mean i i'm jealous of comedians that are like him like who can just write something and it's instantly funny i mean i've worked 10 years at it and it's still i'm probably 60 percent of the time i'm hitting and the other 40 percent is just pure garbage i can throw in the trash (laughs) hey eric i want to mention one thing before we get back to the movie so recently i live in fort worth and we have a couple comedy clubs called a hyenas here and we had kevin come and play he came and did an act. Um, he played on Entourage, played Ari, and it was it was crazy yeah. to see him out there because he, I thought he did a pretty good job, but it seemed like there was a couple times where the crowd was getting kind of sour, and so he would go back to being Ari and just scream out Lloyd or something like that. So <laughs> is is that kind of when you're up there doing stuff like that? Is is it kind of hard for to to not go back to to I don't know what a good way to put it, not to go back to the well, if you will, <laughs> when you're up there and the, well, the crowd's not kind of buying what you're selling. <laughs> Well, there's, there's, there's all like, I don't know, uh, with Jeremy Piven and these guys, and I like Jeremy a lot because I've got to work with him in LA and he's a really sweet guy and he's, he's just, he's giving to the fans and I really like that, but he, he's not the traditional stand-up comedian. He's using his fame to get on stage and like, he hasn't really worked to be a stand-up comedian. Um, so it's a little bit annoying in the sense, like we have really great comedians out there that don't get any recognition. And this guy goes immediately to the stage and everyone wants to see him. He's going all over the country and it's like, it gets a little annoying, but I will say this about him. He treats people well. He's good to the fans. He uh, takes pictures with anybody. Uh, I do like that. Uh, you, can't, you can go to the well. Uh, you try not to, though. Like Brody Stevens taught me is when you're in that position, you just ride it out. Uh, you just find out. But if you're not being funny, just enjoy the silence and keep pushing through, and you'll find something funny. Use, uh, use it as question. motivation, Sorry, right? Use it as motivation yeah, almost, like rejection, yeah. Yeah, I have one other question. We had uh, Frank Caliendo. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, I love Frank. He's great. Yeah, I, I've seen him three or four different times. Uh, we have an improv here also in Deuce <laughs> Dynas, And there was one time he had a guy with him that opened for him that was, like, 
really bad. And we, we were trying to all figure out if he was bad on purpose. You know, because even Frank Caliendo, uh, when he came out, said, I want to thank him for not wearing out the crowd. Because if something well, like see, that ever happened, like I said, well, there, that's the thing is there are comics. Uh, I'm not going to name names here, but there are comics that only take bad comedians on the road with them. So it makes their job easier. <laughs> that's that's kind of what I figured. I was just curious. I've, I've been turned down for jobs because I do too well in the feature spot. So I, I'm not a headliner yet on the feature, but you can't really you can't outshine or you hey. can't shine as right. Hey, you're a headliner to us right now, babe, as we talk to Eric Oligny uh, here with us as we talk the great white hype and about comedians. I mean, Jay and I are fascinated to learn about more about your world and the insight into comedy and why this works. And look, we'll bring it back to the movie in this way. No one has the pretense here that this is an all-time great comedy. Again, uh, you don't know this, Eric. We were talking about it before you came on the podcast. Part of why we're doing it was the huge boxing upset this weekend of the the British world heavyweight champion, Anthony Joshua. He was beaten by a guy who looks like a mall cop, Andy Ruiz, who's got the everyman body. And so that's kind of the premise of the great white hype. Give me somebody credible in the movie that can go against the Damon Wayans character. So that's what that's what brought it up. But still, Samuel L. Jackson with the one-liners uh, combined with you know uh, Damon Wayans and John Lovitz, there's good comedy moments in this. Uh, that that work and that we have fun in, even though it wasn't a wildly successful, uh, wildly successful movie. Still, it works. I did think of this while you were just talking about Jeremy Piven. How about six degrees of separation on other movies? Because I was watching the movie Jay Betzel last night and Eric, uh, The Kingdom. I referenced that earlier in the podcast. Peter Berg is Great the director. Movie. He's the right. He's the director of that action movie where the FBI agents go over to Saudi Arabia. Jamie Foxx is the lead FBI agent, the star of the movie. And Jeremy Piven is in the movie as one of the little lesser characters as the State Department guy who is trying to get them to leave Saudi Arabia because of all the trouble they're going to cause with the U.S. government and the and the Saudi Arabian government and the oil and all that. So it's a great action movie. But they were all together later on, Peter Berg as the director, in a movie about 11 years after this. I can't believe The Kingdom is 12 years old now uh, as a movie. I'm getting, I'm getting old, but there's, a, there's an action Jamie Foxx uh, movie. All right, so I want to give you an opportunity because you've been great to me in helping promote my stuff. Tell me more about traveling to New York, about uh, starting the next chapter of your, of your career, your comedy in New York and what you're doing and how we can find you and follow you. I'm, I'm curious and I want to help you more. Go ahead. Oh yeah, um, I mean I'm I'm blessed to be with one of Brody Stevens left me with a great com- comedy company, All Things Comedy. Uh, if you've never heard of it, you should check them out. They're they're 100 percent going to be the next Comedy Central for uh, comedy. They take on comedians and they sh- they share the wealth. It's about the comedians getting their whole due, um, not having companies just take advantage of them. So they run the podcast for them. They so you can go check them out. They're, they have all kinds of podcasts with like Eric Griffin, Stephen Azizi. Um, you have Felipe Esparza. I mean, it goes across the board with just great comedians. Um, I'm very blessed to be with them. They've taken me into their home and let me be a part of their company, and I'm really glad to have that. I've gotten to work with Brody Stevens on his podcast, The Festival of Friendship, and uh, you know, and I got I got to meet you through it, uh, which is very it was very sweet of you to hit me up after Brody's yep. passing and send me. Yep. 
send me uh, regards, and I was very nice to you. And I've been a fan of yours since I was a kid. So <laughs> That's a scary thing, uh, that I'm getting that old, that you were listening to me as a kid doing radio in Tampa. Um, and so uh, you're going to continue your career in New York. Uh, that is your current plan, uh, and you're heading that way, at least for now, to do stand-up comedy in New York and a new challenge, a new chapter? Yeah, I'm going to be moving to Brooklyn. I was in L.A. for I was in L.A. for about nine years, and I just I had I had done my I had done my work there, and I just I felt like I needed to be in New York and get some time there. Um, so I quit my TV job in L.A. Um, at Funny You Should Ask, and I said I'm going to leave and go do this thing in Brooklyn. And so I'm off to do that. I applied to the Daily Show, so I'm waiting to hear back from them to see if I can get that job. And uh, we'll see. I'll just use my connections to the best I can and try to get a good job out there. I love not, the I'll sense just, of adventure. I'll make I love bagels. That. You'll make bagels in, in, instead. Uh, and I, I wonder, too, and Jay and I are fascinated whenever we bring different guests on uh, about different parts of their life and what they're doing, in terms of writing for your act or other people helping, uh, helping you write, are you constantly doing that? Are you constantly today, this week, writing new jokes, having other people write new jokes, and formulating and practicing and being ready for the next stand-up act? How does it work for you? Uh, yeah, I, I took a lot of, I took a lot of, uh, flack when I was a younger comedian. Cause I wasn't, I don't think I was working hard enough when I was younger. And I just, I talked to a lot of comedians about little things you could do tips. And Ari Shapir gave me the best one is you should just write for an hour a day. Even if you don't feel like writing, just write, even if it's dog shit, just write it, put it down on paper. And if you don't like it, throw it away later. I keep writing and I do that. I keep that up. And now I've been, I've written for some of the biggest comedians on the planet. Uh, I've written for Argus Hamilton, who's a legend at the comedy store, Russell Peters or Leslie Jones. I've written for some really great comedians um, just because I kept writing and I kept hearing my voice and I could hear other people's voice so I could actually write for them. And um, it's exciting now. It's when I write, it's very exciting, um, especially when I go watch a comedian that I love. I can actually find tags in their jokes and give them stuff that I think is funny. And then to watch them do it on stage and it works. And even if it bombs, it's fun to watch it bomb, too. Because then you go, oh, well, that didn't work. <laughs> Live and learn. Jay, anything else for Eric Oligny here, who's being uh, gracious to give us some time? Anything else? Really, I just want to say a big thank you. This was a lot of fun for me. I love talking to people that are that are in different fields that I'm so interested in. So, Eric, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And anytime you want to uh, do the What's the Odds podcast with Steven and Aziz, they, they loved you on there, and they said that when you want to come on for football season, they'd love to have you. Love that, and we love uh, we want to get him back on for comedy any way that we can help you as well. Plug where the fans can find you, social media, web, and otherwise, to stay engaged uh, with you. Go ahead. Yeah, you can find me at Eric Oligny on everything. That's E-R-I-C-O-L-I-G-N-Y. Um, pretty much find me on everything there and follow me around. I don't really write many jokes online anymore just because people like to comment and give their own shitty two cents about your jokes and it's more fun to do it in person. <laughs> and have them pay you and have them pay for you to give them the jokes. I like that part right, uh, too. Right. I, I love this. Hey, uh, look, there's no great white hype here. He just goes and gets it done. He's headed to New York. Uh, we wish you the best. However I can help you, we will do that. Thank you for popping on to talk some comedy, comedians, and the great white hype with us, Eric. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun. You guys have fun with the rest of the podcast. I'm going to go listen to it later. Great stuff. Eric Oligny, again, uh, online, on Twitter, on uh, on Facebook, 
he he was very modest with us. He's had a lot of success as a stand-up comedian uh, there at the comedy store, writing jokes, doing different things. And I give him a lot of credit because he is saying, hey, I want to create a new life and opportunity for myself in New York. It's time to do something different. So he is embarking and... It's kind of like Andy Ruiz, the boxer that knocked out Anthony Joshua. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, right, Jay Betzel? If you can go to New York and win at Madison Square Garden. So good on Eric. We wish him well. We'll stay in touch with him. And it was cool to have him on to talk about the comedians and the and the fun parts and the funny parts of the Great White Hype, right? No doubt. That was really cool. I'm so interested in stuff like that. And um, there's a, a movie we were talking about, Tom Hanks doing that. There's a movie Tom Hanks was in called Punchline where he's a stand-up comedian, Sally Field's in it. Have you ever seen that? Right, yes. It came around the time that Big did. It's an older movie, but that, that's a good one, too. So I might need to go revisit that one for my stand-up comedy thoughts after talking to Eric. So um, picking back up where we were talking about the movie, we're basically now, we are to the fight. So there's you know all the hype and everything around the fight. You know, It shows the, the MGM Grand is where the fight's being held packed house you've got artemis telling the reverend that the pay-per-views through the roof 132 million dollars <laughs> and that was 23 years ago we're talking probably half a billion dollars if they may remade this movie today you know well and uh, and you know in and around this time period all the big fights were being held in that arena in the mgm grand garden arena las vegas strip uh, there in Nevada, so it's a it's the perfect setting. Again, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Samuel L. Jackson's like the Don King character. Uh, Damon Wayans is like the Mike Tyson character. Now Terry Conklin, uh, Peter Berg's character, is like the Jerry Cooney or the the Peter McNeely that's got to step through the ropes. And the funny part of this is that uh, Roper Wayans' character hasn't been taking his training seriously, and we find out at the weigh-in just how he hasn't been taking his training seriously, Jay Betzel. Yeah, and, and um, how funny How funny is this? So, you know, you've got uh, Marvin Shabazz, you know, has been trying to get this fight. You know, he's like the number one contender. He's been trying to get the fight with uh, Roper. And you know, they, Samuel Jackson and the and crew, they keep kind of dodging him, if you will. And he shows up to the introduction of Terry Conklin, and, and basically Terry Conklin sucker punched him and knocks him out, which, you know, there's no telling how, how much, how good that did for the fight. And as we see at that introductory press conference, we see that the girls are digging the chicks dig Terry Conklin. Remember the old right. the Atlanta Braves pitchers commercial chicks dig the long ball. That's kind of how they were. The, and so then we get to the weigh in and you've literally got, it's, it's split half and half. They have played their race card on this so well, where they basically have, you know, set up where all the white people are rooting for Conklin and, and the um, all the minorities are rooting for uh, Roper. And so at the weigh-in, you've got Conklin up there. He's he's chiseled. He's ripped. He's flexing. The girls are cheering. And then you got Roper comes out <laughs> and he opens his <laughs> rope. And it looks almost like some of the fat suits they've put people in. You know, like, remember Julia Roberts in American Sweethearts when they put her down in the fat suit? Exactly. That's, that's kind of what, or even Gwyneth Paltrow in Shallow Hal. That's kind of what this looked like because he was so big. And it, it, well, right, because he looks and, like he looks like a normal athletic person, except for like the forty-pound or thirty-pound belly that they've now put on him, you Hollywood know those, style. Those bouncy balls you see at the gym that people use—that's kind of <laughs> look like he swallowed. Has one it of under those. his it's, shirt? It's really right, funny. right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, you see how he looks, and then go into the fight, and and um, we'd mentioned John Lovitz a lot while we were talking to Eric, but John Lovitz's character who got fired. He kind of corners uh, Mitchell Kane, Jeff Goldblum's character, and says. Um, hey, you need to help me get my job back. You need to, to overthrow the Sultan. 
because everybody's sick of him. You know, the people to that work for him hate him. The champs hate hates him. Everybody hates right. him. He's right. Rips for everybody takeover. off. So right. He, he steals all the yeah, money. Yeah, he, right, he plants right. the seed in the back of Kane's head because obviously Kane has become totally power happy after he's gotten a little taste of how this the good life. And so he's in the back of his mind thinking about signing Irish Terry Conklin because he starts believing his own hype, if you will. You know, and even at the uh, press conference, he picked up, he came in with the wheelbarrow full of fan mail and picks up an empty piece of paper and reads about a kid in a, in a wheelchair that, that thinks he can walk again after seeing Terry Conklin have a chance to fight well, Roper, and it's a blank piece of paper. He's blatantly lying to you know, promote the fight, and so he, <laughs> but he ends up buying his own hype. And so he he talks to Conklin and says, "Hey, I want to sign you. I want to represent you." He's like, "What about the Sultan?" He's like, "You know, forget about him. He's old news. After this, he's going to be done." You know, so he he literally buys into the hype as well. So you know, at the at the weigh in, you know, he's looking around. He sees everything, and he knows he knows what he's got to do. So then they so moving on when we get to the fight, you've got. Um, Samuel Jackson, of course, has his, his uh, ringside seats. And did you catch the part when the guy walks by with the long, dark hair and the suit? And he goes, hey, Vincent, say hi to Jules for me. Did you catch that? I did not. You know, that was a quick thing, and I did not catch that. No. But, yes, I mean, they did a little shout-out there to Pulp Fiction and yeah, Travolta's wink, character. Wink, nod, nod. <laughs> yeah, well, so- and there's... And there's a couple of and there's a couple of other moments uh, in the movie where they're making reference to other things too. Jamie Foxx is kind of making some uh, some different quotes to uh, to the Sultan uh, as that. So uh, I, I you know I kind of like that, but I mean clearly clearly here in this movie we've got to get to the conclusion of the actual fight itself and and what's going to happen. And uh, I lo- I love how <laughs> I love how the Sultan's character uh, Samuel L. Jackson invites Jeff Goldblum's Kane to come sit right here by me, and and then Kane thinks, well, I've got one up on you. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the guy that's gonna run Conklin's career because remember he's never fought as a professional. That's the whole yeah. Premise. He says this is so, the end of the Sultanic era of boxing. He's like what? <laughs> <laughs> and he remember he made. Um, he made Cheech Marin move down to the end so he could sit next to him because he basically had his guy. And he said, "He said um, the new heavyweight champion Terry Conklin has signed with me. I'm going to represent him." And he starts laughing. He's like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "He's not going to win." He's like, "You're starting to believe your own hype." And he just smiles. He's like, "We'll see." He's yes, we will see because <laughs> he knows he knows what's going on, and he knows that ultimately uh, Roper can make something happen. So. Uh, yeah, and you, so, get, and, you know, and you get Conklin in the ring, and the crowd's going crazy. And they're, they're doing they, they play up this Irish thing with oh, Danny Boy playing when he comes the little, in. The little the leprechauns lines. in front of yeah. him throwing Lucky Charms, yes. <laughs> and and they even found a kid in a wheelchair holding like the Irish flag, you know, so they're rooting for him. And then and then they switch to Roper's uh, locker room, and you know he's not he's sitting there watching Dolomite and smoking, and you know and he's totally totally not taking this seriously at all. Which you can almost picture Tyson was probably doing for the Buster Douglas fight. Because remember when that fight even in Tokyo, they couldn't even find anybody in Vegas that wanted it because that's it right. was such a lopsided event that they had well, to move and play or fight in Tokyo. And the and the bottom line is that's the standard of all great upsets now in any sport. What happened with that? It showed the vulnerability of Tyson, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, so now we get to the actual fight. They ring the bell where Wayans and Berg are going to have to square off, and, and it's over very quickly. It's over, it's over in a two-act first round where Irish Terry Conklin does the one thing he's known for, which is throw the big right hand, and it doesn't work, does it, Jay? It made him mad. He's, a, you know, he's got his mouthpiece in, Roper does, but basically he says, what are you trying to do, embarrass me on TV? You know, and even... Um, in the corner, Conklin's guys have said, don't make him mad. 
you know, and Conklin started to believe in his own BS too. He's like, I'm going to win. You know, he started calling him fat boy, just taunting him and all that. And so that, <laughs> yeah, when, when he hit him, that was it. It was church after that. Yep. And so then uh, uh, Roper comes, comes back, knocks Conklin sideways down and out. And the fight, much like the Mike Tyson fights that have become a farce, is over with in less than a minute. I love, by the way, we haven't mentioned this yet, but we've got the same announcer, Stu Nahan, that's in the first couple of Rocky movies, uh, the uh, the longtime late L.A. sportscaster. And by the way, the fight doctor, Ferdy Pacheco, who was always Ferdy in the corner. Ferdy Pacheco. Of, he was always in Muhammad Ali's corner in the 70s and the early 80s, later became a fight broadcaster on NBC and the pay-per-views, worked with Marv Albert on NBC, worked with Steve Albert on the pay-per-views for Showtime. He's in it, and and Ferdy Pacheco, by the way, a Tampa resident. You know, we had Eric Oligny on earlier here for a long time until he passed away. Ferdy Pacheco grew up in Tampa, um, a Cuban heritage, was an artist, was a painter, was was in and around Tampa as not just a boxing guy and as a doctor. Uh, and I got the chance to meet him and interview him in studio doing local radio, and that was in and around the time that this movie was made. He was a he was a big star. I love I love him uh, trying to uh, to do the interviews, and of course Sultan's trying. Trying to answer for the fighter, and he's like, uh, Reverend, let me let me talk to the fighter here. Uh, but anyway, knows that the fighter's just going to say something stupid. He's going to exactly. have to cover up later. So they're <laughs> on the call, to, to but they're on the call, the and and they're they're dumbfounded uh, here that the the fight is over with again in like less than a minute. Uh, and once again, James the Grim Reaper Roper is is retained the heavyweight title. And all hopes are dashed for the boxing career of Irish Terry Conklin. Of course, he, he was saying he doesn't even like boxing anymore. He just wants to go back with the money and uh, give it to the homeless. Yeah, he so wanted to eradicate the problem. So, eradicate US, the, the homelessness. Right, eradicate the homelessness problem. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but in America and the United States. That's such a great line because it just showed his, his level of intelligence. But yeah, so he's. So you have after he gets laid out, you have Kane stand up and him and um, and the Reverend Sultan are both smoking cigars. He looks over at him. He goes, I guess we reap what we show. Yes, we do. We reap what we sow. He's just sitting there laughing at him because <laughs> he, he, he knows that he bought into the hype, too. So he he said, you know, he, he takes off. He walks away, goes over to Conklin and says, hey, if anybody asks you about a rematch, say no. He's like, no, no rematch. I just want to go back to Cleveland and play music. And so he says, so he walks, he walks past and he goes back. He's like, wait a minute, you need representation in music. He's like, I tell you what, you're woozy. I'll call you. So while that's going on, you've got um, Marvin Shabazz yep. and, and Jamie Foxx come up in the ring because they want to get their title shot. And they, and, and so uh, Roper says, I'm tired of every time I have a moment of glory, these two idiots coming and trying to steal my, my thunder. And so basically Jamie Foxx pulls out a gun, you know, it's a big gun and says, um, he's, he, he's going to get an answer one way or another. And so Damon Wayans, uh, Roper lays him out, and then Shabazz and him start going at it. And what do you have? Sultan starts yelling, "Don't no, give away what no. we can sell!" Exactly. <laughs> and so and you got you so got Ferdy Pacheco calling it, going, knocked, "Wait a minute, we got yeah. a fight after the fight in the ring, and it's, it's a better yeah, it's, fight. It's the Shabazz Roper fight uh, yeah, that's so happening." Shabazz lays Roper out. You know, Roper's down. All of all Roper's guys are going, "Woo!" Stand above him. <laughs> and then Samuel Jackson does exactly what Don King did to Tyson in the Douglas fight and walked away and put his arm around Douglas. He, he he literally steps over Roper and puts his arm around Shabazz and and says, um, "You have just seen a preview of the upcoming fight between Shabazz and, and James the Grim Reaper Roper. I love it, and I love you." I and then, love it, then it cuts you. to this huge party in their suite. It's basically more of the same. You know that that's that's just kind of their lifestyle, and it's. I mean, so kind of wrapping things up on the movie, a scale of one to ten, I'd probably give it about a six and a half or a seven. 
and that's that's being pretty generous. It's grown uh, on me over yeah. the years because I just think it's funny, and I really I love Samuel Jackson, the actor. I think he's a great actor, and I thought this was kind of a vanity project for him almost because he was in essentially every scene, you know, and he did such a great job playing the the modern version of Don King, if you will. And um, I, I was kind of thinking about this when I was watching it last night that I think this could be a really good idea for a movie if it was made a little more serious and wasn't kind of a satire. And, you know, maybe they took a little more time. We talked about this earlier. This kind of popped into my head while we were doing this. You know, the fact that that Tyson fight was the previous August, it seems it feels kind of rushed. You know, like they put it together really quick where if maybe they'd spent some time on it and stuff, right. I think they could have. It, it could have been a better movie. Well, but again, and, and we go back like to we go back to Ron Shelton, who had done so well with Bull Durham before this, and I loved White Man Can't Jump. You weren't, I don't think, as big a fan of that one as I am, but that one that one had success. And in and around this same time, he was filming Tin Cup. So, but may, maybe that was part of it. It was rushed because he was also filming Tin Cup, and they and they rushed, like you mentioned, because Tyson was out of prison and he had fought Peter McNeely, and there's the real life great white hype, and it's over in one round. So when you know kind of the I way it works when they when they list the credits, whoever the first person listed is is the last person to work on it. So Tony Hendra is the first one listed, and Ron Shelton was second. So it's likely that Ron Shelton just gave them kind of an outline, and Tony Hendra filled it in. You know, something along those lines, because that does happen a lot. Right. Well, and so. Uh, anyway, that's uh, that's essentially the movie. The the hype is over with in just one round. Um, it, it's some interesting trivia about this. There, this is not the only boxing movie set in and around the MGM Grand Garden Arena. There would be a couple more after that, including uh, Play It to the Bone, the two fighters, Woody Harrelson, uh, Antonio Banderas' characters that are friends, end up having one more fight together, kind of like on the undercard of a big boxing event for one more big payday for both of them. And that was ironically written and directed by Ron Shelton. So maybe he did that as kind of a make good yeah. for the um, for the work on, on Great White Hype. And yeah, Play It to the Bone had a real good, you know, had Woody Harrelson, Antonio Benderich mentioned Lolita Davidovich, Tom Sizemore, Robert Davidovich. Wagner, a lot, lot of people in it. So that one, I, I enjoyed that one. I haven't seen it in a while, but that, that was a fun movie to watch for sure. Um, and and you, we also and we also have a couple of other ones, including uh, Ocean's Eleven, which will probably be a we've seen that at some point uh, down the road here, not too distant, where uh, Lennox Lewis and Vladimir Klitschko uh, are are fictitiously fighting. They had not really fought at that time, and that sets ever fight. They did eventually fight, yes, and Lennox Lewis defeated him, but uh, they, they had not fought in the early 2000s, and that is part of the setting of the bank robbery, of the heist, of the blackout happening while the fight is going on. That's also in the same MGM Grand Garden Arena. And well, the reason of, they picked that night was because they had to have a certain amount of money that's right. to cover all the chips extra, played and the traffic and everything extra going money. on. Like an extra money, exactly. like an extra $40 million to cover all the chips in play uh, on all the tables in Nevada that night, so uh, and then I, I want to say uh, that the the Rocky um, the Rocky Balboa, the sixth one with Stallone and Antonio Tarver fighting as Mason the Line Dixon, another Tampa guy. Every every connection on this podcast today seems to be to Tampa. I believe that was also MGM Grand Garden Arena, if I'm not mistaken. So that I mean that that facility has been used over and over again in fight movies in the '90s and in the 2000s. Is my point? So a little yeah, trivia I told there. you. I think when we did Rocky Four. Last year around Thanksgiving, we did that one. Um, I think I told you the story, so I'll give it the quick version that I got to go to Vegas for um, Michael Moore and Holyfield, mm-hmm. and it was um, it was set um, it was put up on, put on by the Mirage, 
and the Mirage didn't have an arena, so the fight was actually at the Thomas and Mack Center. So that was kind of a crazy deal. See how the limousines pulled up outside the arena where the UNLV Run Rebels basketball team plays. <laughs> right. But but that was a lot of fun. That's the closest to anything like that I've ever seen other than the Manny Pacquiao type I have Well, I have been in that arena, and they've had big fights even recently in that arena over the last few years. Um but uh, they've also changed it. You wanted to point this out because there's a scene where Jeff Goldblum is is doing interviews outside of it, and they had the big lion right in the entrance back in the 90s. Right, yeah, and, and I haven't been to Vegas in a little while, but the last time I went, it wasn't there. So I'm not sure exactly how long it's been gone, but the big lion entrance was not there. And I've got a kind of a funny side note to that on a little trivia. It says that the lion's head entrance to the MGM Grand has been removed since this movie was filmed because many Chinese gamblers would avoid the casino or enter through the back due to, to a, a belief that they were entering the mouth of a lion was bad luck. So, Cursed. To sound, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that's why it's gone. I just know it wasn't there when I went. So That's a very interesting little bit of trivia there and subplot. You know, there's one thing uh, that we have not talked about. I don't know how much you know about this. I knew something about it, and now I've looked while we were just talking here, that the character, the actor that played Marvin Shabazz, Michael Jace, uh, horribly later now in life after having a, a an acting career that included being on The Shield, the FX TV show, and some other, some other acting roles, has eventually, uh, now in the 2010s, been convicted of murdering his wife. What he claimed was an accident, the L.A. authorities... Uh, claim was murder. They prosecuted him, and he has been convicted and is currently serving up to 40 years for murder. So when you see this movie, which which we did, I didn't remember that. But Michael Jace, the actor that plays Marvin Shabazz, now in prison for murder after the uh, the murder of his wife in 2014, convicted in 2016. Wow. I did not know that. I remember that? seeing him. He was in the um, the replacements, the football movie with Hackman and Keanu Reeves. Yeah, I was like, I've seen him in other stuff. And, and now you mentioned The Shield. Yes, I did mention, and so again, this is this is something where he claimed for two years, uh, all the way up until the trial and during the trial, that it was accidental, that they had had a fight and the gun had accidentally gone off, and there was testimony uh, from expert witnesses saying it could not have been the case, that it, it had to have been intentional, and he was convicted on that and is now serving up to 40 years in prison as a... As a uh, footnote as part of this so there, there you go uh, but I mean Jamie Foxx again bit role in this meteoric rise Samuel L. Jackson continued on that uh, trajectory um, just interesting to go back in in time and of course we mentioned Tin Cup and Ron Shelton there's Cheech Marin in the movie some and he's obviously Kevin Costner's Caddy Romeo in Tin Cup uh, as well in another Ron Shelton movie from that year so here's here's uh, a couple things I found too going back to what we're talking about Shelton it says he has expressed distaste for this film because his script was completely revised by comedian Tony Hendra, and his dislike of the movie was such that he has tried to get his name taken off of it because the film they made was not the script I wrote. I find it a horrible movie. Wow. <laughs> so, How about that? It didn't grow on him over the years like it did me. I wonder if he'd have felt the same way if the movie had made $80 million, eight zero instead of $8 million. I don't know. But maybe he would Never have. Maybe know. he would. Well, I mean, one thing that Eric Oligny was telling us there, uh, it is a tight-knit community in the writing community uh, for anything, for comedy, for drama, for action. The writers behind this, New York, L.A., whoever the screenwriters, script writers are, it's a tight-knit community. And if you are stealing or lifting people's stuff, you're, you're an outcast. And if you're changing everything around and it bombs and does badly, that can ruin your career. Uh, on writing, so it's just interesting 
that subplot that you you brought up. Um, you know, because Eric again was was sharing with us that the the code, if you will, in comedy is you try to help other comedians out by writing things for them and helping them tell their their jokes and their story because others will do it for you. So it's just interesting that Shelton would have that take on they rewrote my movie, they rewrote my script. Well, that's I kind of just was thinking out loud earlier, just you know, looking back at some of his movies, how this was, you know, another one of his we did was Blue Chips. You know, his his stuff usually kind of ends with a bang, and this one seems like it just kind of ended. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> it was kind of going along, and then suddenly that fire was there, and it was over. There's nothing, nothing else happened. So very good. All right, anything else? What uh, do we have? Anything from Roger Ebert or the critics? Uh, they had to right, have you know, probably destroy this. Always kind of. We, we venture back to Siskel and Ebert because that was the show that I watched growing up that made me want to do the show we're doing now. And Roger Ebert gave The Great White Hype two stars. His little at the beginning, I'll kind of read a little bit of what he has to say because it kind of describes perfectly the way I think all of us feel. This is The Great White Hype is like a runner who leads for the first part of the race and then runs out of gas. Starts out well as a wicked satire on professional boxing and then loses its energy, tires of juggling its characters, and then abruptly ends at 91 minutes. It feels like the last thrill might be missing. And then down here at the bottom, it says, if you, um, the, the movie's big scene does not pay off, it, and it leads to another scene that doesn't work, and then an ending so abruptly that it unsatisfyingly feels as if the movie had stopped before it was over. See, it's exactly what I was just saying. So you can see here that the inspiration was correct. A hard-edged boxing satire would have worked, but the filmmakers had, they had a handle on it. But the actors were ready to deliver, and the, the movie somehow TKO'd itself. I don't think we can say it much better than that. Yes. So again, we've we've harpooned this pretty well. We explained the reason why we're doing it. It's funny in spots. It's and, really uh, worth watching just to see Samuel Jackson. There you go. As as with that with that gray straight wig on as the Reverend Sultan and the outfits that he's got on. And it's also fun to go back and look at the comedians that are involved in this. And I just want to say thank you again to Eric Oligny uh, for coming on as a comedian to talk about the comedic value. We gotta have him on again when we do more comedy and more stuff. Follow him on social media. Got a lot of connections to the comedy world in L.A., different uh, stand-up comics and comedy shows on TV and that kind of stuff. So thank you, Eric, one more time publicly. Anything else, Famous Jack? Yeah, if, it, uh, you know, if people enjoy listening to us talk the boxing angle, where can people listen to you talk boxing? Uh, they can they can hear me on the Big Fight Weekend podcast that we also have as part of Red Circle Podcasting, iTunes, Google Play. Famous Jay, I had fun talking the great white hype here as we're going out to the music from the soundtrack back of this 1996 movie. Uh, thanks for hopping on here with me and, and talking this one up today. Definitely. And I want to mention if people, anybody wants to see it, I found it's on Amazon Prime and it was like three bucks. So it's an hour and a half long. It's a fun little movie. If you're bored, you want to kill an afternoon or something. Amazon Prime's where I found it. Thanks to everybody for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Love it. The Samuel L. Jackson and Jeff Goldblum and Damon Wayans and Peter Bergel. Thank you for looking it up for their little royalty off of that. Also, YouTube has it as well, I believe, for the $3.99 uh, price to go and watch. The Great White Hype 1996 boxing movie with those stars that we mentioned. Thanks also again to Eric Oligny, uh, who joined us as a, as a guest, as a comedian, uh, to spice things up here on this episode of the show. Follow us at We've Seen That on Twitter. Follow the We've Seen That Facebook page as well. And we thank you for being with us on this edition, talking 1996 and the great white hype. Bye. <laughs>